Welcome to Inman Reconnect, where we bring you into our conversations about what's happening next in real estate. I'm your host, Clelia Peters. Let's jump into today's episode. Today, we'll hear Olympic gold medalist Abby Wambach talk about teamwork, perseverance, and taking the freaking ball. is right. That's where I went to school. Um, that's what we all do in UF. It's fine. Um, thank you for having me. And I just want to say that it's been a really interesting week. Um, obviously, with what happened with Kobe, and I don't know if you guys saw, but last night there was this woman, uh, Christine Sinclair. She broke the record that I had for most international goals scored. So don't worry, it's okay. We want to cheer for her. Uh, But a few months after I retired, uh, I found myself on a stage actually standing next to Kobe and Peyton. Do you guys know those two guys? Okay, good. Um, ESPN called and they wanted to honor me with what's called the SB Icon Award. They wanted to give it to me, myself, Peyton, and and Kobe. I remember being on that stage and feeling so grateful, so awed by, first of all, being included in the same sentence as these two champions. Uh, And like, we women, here I am on this stage, we women, we finally made it. And the cameras turned off and the lights turned off and the three of us walked off stage and something else happened to me, right? It's supposed to be one of the best nights of my life. It was supposed to like, bookend my career. I'm supposed to go to the celebrity parties with everybody. Um, But something else totally different happened. I got in my car and I drove back to the hotel and I tried to sort through some of this emotion. You know, I was, for lack of a better word, pissed. Like, I, I, I had spent my whole life, my whole career fighting for the right to be on that stage. I got on that stage and then the second I got off, I realized, oh, the three of us walked into three very different retirements. You know, their biggest concern was where they were gonna spend their hundreds of millions of dollars that they earn. And my concern was how I was gonna pay my mortgage that next month. This is a true story and this is true for every female athlete. Maybe not Serena. (laughs) I think she's got it going fine for her. But I thought that night, I I just couldn't believe, first of all, what my role in this was, right? Because throughout my career, I had negotiated the CBAs with with US Soccer, I had negotiated many contracts with many sponsors, and what really is market value? I know you guys are into the real estate market, so you probably know specifically what market value means. But when it comes to a person's value, how can you measure that? I promised myself that night two things. One, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe and Crystal Dunn's of the world would not share that experience that I had on that stage when they chose to retire. And number two, that I was gonna do everything I could to level the playing field for women everywhere, because if this was happening to me, you know, 
I played on the women's national team. We won Olympic gold medals. I kind of fancied myself, I'm not gonna lie. And if this was happening to me, this is happening to women everywhere. So when I was young, I was about 16 years old, I got called into my first youth national team camp. Uh, the camp was in Chula Vista, California at the United States Olympic Committee uh, Center, the training center down there. And the fields, the buildings, the whole thing is pristine. And at 16 years old, I'm meeting other 16-year-olds that are nervous as heck, that don't really know why they were called to come. Um, and here we are, we're trying to train, we're trying to figure out what it means to be on the United States women's national teams. So during that time, it was right before the 96 Olympics, and the 96 Olympics was the first time women's soccer was allowed into an Olympic game event. So our women's national team, our senior team, they were there on a residency basis, training day in and day out. I think they got a few days off a month. Uh, so what that means is that they had a specific area uh, at the, uh, the training center, that uh, a locker room that was just specific to women's soccer. So what we, we got it was a really cool opportunity at 16 years old. We got to go tour the, the senior team's locker room. Now I know that might feel weird, but it was like the best day of my life when they told me this. We walk in and it's like every other locker room you could imagine. It's a little stinky, a little messy, uh, things strewn about. And, um, and yes, I was that weird child that went straight to Mia Hamm's locker, got her cleats and started rubbing them all over my legs to try to like get any kind of goodness from them. And being in this like sacred place inside the locker room that my idols spent putting their cleats on, putting their, their jerseys on and their practice gear on for practice every day, you would think that it was the jersey or the cleat that, like, that did it for me, but it wasn't. It was actually this picture. And the picture that, that, that they taped right next to the door, as every player would see on their way out to the training pitch, you would think maybe it was of, of them winning their last game or something really great that happened, but it wasn't. It was actually of the Norwegian women's national team, obnoxiously in my opinion, celebrating the previous year's win over the United States, knocking the US out of the World Cup in 95. And at 16 years old, I couldn't understand. Like my brain couldn't compute what was going on. I looked at that picture and I thought, that's weird. Why would they want to remember that? Why would they want that to be the thing that they see before they head out to the pitch every single day? And it struck me and it struck the rest of us. We talked about it. Like, oh, maybe that's what they do here. Maybe they, maybe they turn towards the times where they didn't succeed or that they failed. Maybe they work through some of the failures because here's the thing. All athletes know, and this is why so many companies in the world want to hire athletes, all athletes know is that failure is just opportunity. Some know it better than others, but it's true. I mean, how many single times did I suck to get decent and then to get good? Like a lot. I mean, I'm failing so much more than I was succeeding, even as a professional. Even as the international 
world record holder for goals, I was still making mistakes. Why are we so afraid of this concept and idea of failure? I think what we need to do is shift it. I think that what we need to do is make failure something positive. And that's a mindset. It's something that you can do. Okay, so this didn't work. Why did it not work? What can I do to fix it? And how can I approach it differently? A couple years after that story, I was, I was at the Chula Vista Training Center again, playing on the U18 team, and one of my idols was walking down to the pitch. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Her name was Michelle Akers. Yes, that's amazing. She was basically, she personified every one of my dreams. She had quads like I dreamed of having one day. She had an amazing head of curly hair. Um, but more importantly, she played the game so courageously and, and it looked like she had no care for her own safety. And I loved that about her and I loved how she pulled her teammates in and I loved how she scored goals and I loved how she led. Well, she starts walking towards our 18-year-old practice. She's in her 30s. This is before the 99 World Cup. This is 1998. And mind you, at the time, there was no professional women's soccer in the United States. Um, the, the full national team was taking time off, so she just wanted to stay, stay fit and get touches on the ball, so she chose at the time to come and play with 18-year-olds. It makes me giggle now, thinking like, what that would look like, like Alex Morgan like walking up to the 18-year-old's practice now, like that would never happen, because Alex has like proper training abilities. Anyways, we uh, are about to, to, to put on our, our cleats. She sits down next to me. I don't understand what's happening, and she's putting her cleats on, and I'm having a total freak out. We go into this 5v5 exercise, and I know that soccer is very confusing to a lot of people. I know that um, zero, zero games make no sense to Americans. I also, you know, something that I think that I'm gonna, to, to, get FIFA to do, which is the governing body, is maybe, maybe if we make each goal worth six points, more Americans would watch. <laughs> Think about that. Like, oh yeah, that's what they do in football. Anyway, side note. So 5v5 with big goals means we're playing five against five. And Michelle jumps in, she's on the other team, and my team goes up really quickly, we score four goals. Um, and during this time, I'm just like amazed that I'm on the same field as this woman. She's like trying to do all the things that leadership is calling her to do at that time. She's like motivating, she's pulling players, she's kind of coaching and teaching them where they need to be. And then the coach says, five minutes left. So we got one quarter left of this game. Something totally different happens to Michelle. It was like a light switched on inside of her because the time called for leadership in her to change. Her goalkeeper had her ball in her hands and Michelle ran straight back to the goalkeeper, got one inch from her face and said, give me the effing ball. It was like she personality switched and the, and the goalkeeper was terrified. So she was like, okay, I don't know why you're yelling at me. And Michelle got the ball and she dribbled through all of us, leaving us all on the ground in her wake. 
She scored the goal, and it was winner's keeper, so she ran back to her own goalkeeper who had the ball in her hand, and she's like, oh, hell no, like, you just take it. And she did it again and again and again, and I think you can understand where this story's going. Michelle's team beat us, jerks. But I had never seen a person, let alone a woman, step into her power like that. I didn't even know you could do things like that. I didn't know that when the going got rough or your team needed a couple goals, that you were allowed because you were the one, because you knew what you could offer, that you were allowed to say, give me the ball. What Michelle did that day started a process for me because it took me many more years to embrace the idea of demanding the ball because there's a caveat to this. You can't go around the world saying, give me, give me, give me, and then not deliver. Those are empty promises. What made it so special is that Michelle said what she wanted, got what she wanted, and then delivered. So in every soccer game, there is a, a goal that gets scored, hopefully. And for me, what's interesting, because now I've got children who play soccer, and I'm trying to show them and, and point them in the directions that were interesting to me. I can tell everything that I need to know about a team by the way they celebrate. You know, the goal gets scored and the camera always goes to that player who scored. I know, because that happened to me a lot. Um, and I think it's really important to understand, especially if you're that goal scorer, that you don't score that goal without the help of the people around you. I never scored a single goal in my career without the help of a teammate. And you might know soccer, so you might think, well, what about penalty kicks? And I'll tell you this, the amount of hours our goalkeepers stayed after practice, taking penalty kick after penalty kick, getting me proficient at it, I mean, the, the hours are countless. And that effort was important. So though I'm standing on the ball by myself and scoring goals with a penalty kick, I needed those goalkeepers to get me better. If you are the goal scorer, one thing I've learned, because you know I've done it a lot, one thing that I've learned, in order to get the full team marching in the right direction, following this big goal, however big you've set it, the only way you can get everybody on board is to make sure that whoever is scoring that goal is always pointing to the people around them making sure that they know that the reason why that goal went in is because of the help around. And if you aren't the goal scorer, because sometimes I wasn't, I was rushing towards her because I also wanted to know and I wanted her to know how valued I thought she was. You know, playing on the women's national team, one of the things that differentiates us from the rest of the world, is this idea of competition. And so often, especially when we're in a team, we think, okay, I'm gonna compete against this person, I'm competing for this spot, so I'm competing against her or him. But the truth is, is our women's national team, what makes us so successful is we were never competing against each other. 
we were competing with. And that is a massive, massive difference. We were genuinely excited for each other because when Alex Morgan scored goals, that was my opportunity to turn up my volume. I think a lot of jealousy or, or inability to want to celebrate other people's wins is just personal insecurity for not having been the one or didn't get there, didn't get the sale, didn't achieve your goal. In 2015, um, I know that this last summer, the 2019 team won the World Cup, and that was amazing. You can clap. <clears throat> but this story is about 2015 when we also won the World Cup, and... <laughs> so halfway through the tournament, um, you know, I'm 35 years old at the time. I know that this is gonna be my last World Cup. I'm excited, uh, and I'm curious how the rest of this World Cup is gonna go. The last four games of the World Cup, those games could potentially go into extra time, which would mean that the games could be 120 minutes long. And at 35 years old, there was no way I was going to be able to do that. So early days uh, before those games, my coach called me in. We had uh, a really difficult discussion. She talked about me being a game changer, um, my role on the team being one of the most important. And um, she also told me that I was gonna come off the bench for the rest of the tournament, pretty much. So all of that was fancy, a way of saying I got my ass benched, okay? <laughs> and that night at the hotel, I remember feeling like, okay, this sucks, because I was dealing with so much you know, embarrassment. Um, you know, my family all had traveled. I had never not really started in a world championship game before. I was always like the go-to leader, um, the person who you could count on to score the goals, and now I was being handed a totally different role. I spent my whole career telling some of these, these uh, bench players, these game changers is what our national team calls them, uh, that they mattered. And here I was now in this role, having to believe all the things that I had said to those players. And let me tell you, I was disappointed. I can't lie about that. And I did think about both roads, being a good teammate or being a bad teammate. And I'm telling you in that hotel room that night, I played out both of those roads to the end because I'm a competitor and I'm human. You know, it's okay if life has benched you sometimes. Everybody in this room knows and has experienced a benching a time or two. But what's not okay is to miss your opportunity to lead from that bench. Because what I've learned now looking back is that everything I had yet to learn about leadership was actually sitting right there on that bench next to me. And people ask me all the time what I'm most proud of, and of course, I scored goals. That was my thing. But I'm telling you right now that the way that I responded to that benching in hindsight, because it's not easy when you're in it, but in hindsight, the way that I responded to that benching is something that I'm most proud of, more than any other big goal that I've ever scored, and that's like really true. And it's possible, it's accessible to everyone in this room. It's okay to be disappointed, but it's not okay to miss your opportunity to lead from the bench. So anybody in here also hate running as much as me? 
Yes, thank you. So after a 30-year soccer career, I thought that I, this body built up enough goodwill that I would never have to work out another day in my life. <laughs> and that was wrong. Um, I, I had de dealt with quite a few injuries throughout my time on the, the national team, and I was suffering a little bit at the end with Achilles tendonitis and whatnot. Uh, so my body needed to kind of get reset. So I literally took 18 months off of, of doing any kind of physical activity. Um, and that was all right, but like I felt gross. I was scared of mirrors and all that. And so I started to train because I wanted, I wanted, I mean, let's be honest, I just wanted the body that I used to have. So I started to run and I would come home and I would complain to my wife, like, I don't understand why this is so difficult. It is, it is so hard. I have gold medals. I'm an Olympian. I'm a world record holder. Why is this so hard for me? Like, this should be easier for me. And it's not, it's hard for everybody. And my wife, she got sick of me complaining about it. She's like, look, like, it's because you don't have your team. You don't have your people around you. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. So suffering shared is better? She's like, that's exactly right. And here's the thing, y'all, I think it's true for joy as well. And I think that we have lost sight on, and especially when you go and you leave college and you get into your first job and you start your job and you have the people around you that you're you know, friends with or colleagues with, like, do you proactively go out and try to find your people? The people to do life with, the people that hold you accountable, the people that know you, the people that know where you want to go in your life. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually at a friend's wedding, and a few of my former teammates were there. They're both pregnant, and they want to have something to, to train for when they have these babies in June. And I was like, well, I'm thinking about running the New York City Marathon in 2020, and they're like, done. And like, those are my people, and we don't live near each other, but we just said it once. A week later, Heather, my friend, she sent me hotel reservations, the Robin Hood charity thing that we're hooking up with. And I'm just like, okay, like these people are my people. You gotta find your people because that is what made my time on the national team so special. It wasn't the championships. Yes, those were awesome and cool and fun, but it was like the moments in the locker room that really did it for me after those championships. It was all of the sacrifice and the work that you do together. You know, I, I wrote a book this last year, it's called Wolfpack, and thank you. Uh, and one of the things about why I named that book Wolfpack is because I'm obsessed with flipping the fairy tales, the bullshit fairy tales that little girls are told about what it means to be a little girl. You know the story, Little Red Riding Hood, she goes off into the woods and then she gets a little curious and if she goes off the path, then otherwise she's gonna be eaten by the big bad wolf. Well, if I could go back and tell my younger self anything, it would be Abby. You were never Little Red Riding Hood. You were always the wolf. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inman Reconnect. Visit inman.com slash 
Reconnect for all episodes of Inman Reconnect. Please subscribe to Inman Reconnect in the Apple Podcast app, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.